Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that this week my guest is somebody who has been called Britain's greatest living classical composer. Sir James Macmillan, in an extraordinary career, has produced symphonies, choral work, opera, concerto. This year his fifth symphony was premiered at the Edinburgh Festival. He's also well known to the readers of such publications as Standpoint and Spectator, where he's written very eloquently about art and politics. Um, welcome, thank you very much, James, for coming. Um, it's special year this year, isn't it? It's your 60th. That's right. And this has been marked in the musical world, hasn't it? It has. Uh, it feels a bit like being the Queen, actually. Every, <laughs> every day seems to be a birthday. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Edinburgh Festival, as, as you've indicated, uh, put a, a big focus on me this year. And there's been various things like that at home and abroad. So I've been, I've been very busy and travelling and, and writing a lot too. And you've also produced uh, a book, haven't you? Yes. To mark my 60th birthday, I've written a very short uh, a collection of reflections. I use uh, I use things that have happened in my life as a starting point, and then begin to reflect on uh, issues that are, arise from them. Mainly about music, but not not only uh, religion. Some politics. I'm a little careful about that sometimes. Mm. Um, but um, and and wider artistic aesthetics and so on. Yes, I mean you. Uh, we first met actually about ten ten years ago, and we. Uh, we did a conversation for a book that we produced here at the NCF and uh, I remember in that, one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is in that, without going immediately into politics, uh, you know, you, I remember you saying something, you were you used to get frustrated that people automatically made assumptions about what you were politically because you were in the art world, because you were a composer. Yes, uh, I think that's true and uh, I can understand why those assumptions were made and continue to be made not just about me but by many about many people in the arts um, but the issue is that uh, gradually throughout my life and I began uh, as a kind of precocious teenager interested in politics and it was very left-wing politics it was the young communist league yes I joined the young communist league when I was about 14 yeah. and basically since then uh, very very slowly and incrementally I've been losing all my youthful certainties right and uh, I try to make an account for that in some of the things that I say and, and write about um, but I, I, I as, as a Catholic, you know, I, I, I also feel uh, a great deal of sympathy with uh, agnostics because I now know what being an agnostic feels like, <laughs> uh, except the religion I have lost is the anti-religion, uh, right. anti-religious religion of Marxism. Um, and um, <clears throat> that's been an interesting journey. And I, I remember crucial moments where I began to have severe doubts. And uh, it doesn't mean I've become the opposite of whatever that it was. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy being uh, that kind of free-floating figure now, that, that yes. in, engaging in conversations and thought and reading and indeed friendships with people I would never have had anything to do with 30-odd uh, years ago. But, I mean, obviously, you, therefore, p politics, to, to be that involved at 14, uh, you know, this was something that you were quite passionate about. Was it a political family? Um, Yes and no. My, my uncle Brian was a Labour councillor, and 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 those kind of communities uh, are, are steeped in Labour tradition in working class uh, areas like Ayrshire, where where I grew up. Um, but that was a moderate. Um, 
socially conservative Labourism. Yes. Yes. Uh, my grandfather, who was a coal miner, uh, was committed to the Labour Party, but he was very, very wary of Marxists in the National Union of Mine Workers, and he fought against them, um, not physically, but politically yeah. throughout his life. Um, and and that, that strain of Labourism is something that I've always had a great admiration for. Um, he was very disappointed in me uh, when I became a communist because it was like joining the enemy. Yeah. And uh, I still have huge regrets about that. You know, I, I did hurt my grandfather uh, by doing that and I was stubborn, I was silly. Uh, but he was right, uh, it was probably the worst thing I've ever done. Yes, really? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's... Uh, that's uh, it's, it's still a living regret you have. It is. I still wake up uh, in a lather of uh, um, self-recrimination <laughs> from time yeah. to time, wondering whether, even just as a teenager, and it was, it's, it's not, not very important, I suppose, in retrospect, but just in the, 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 the thought and, and the, the, um, the just wondering whether I may have given sucker to one of the most evil ideologies that has ever mm. been in this world. Mm. Before this, though, and in some ways, far more importantly, uh, you were already composing, weren't you? Exactly. Uh, I read, is this right, uh, at 10 years old you were composing? Yes, yes, I was given a, a little recorder, a plastic recorder. That we at all school. were at school. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not the seismic experience for most British school children that it was for me, but certainly it felt like a, a light going on. And I, I knew immediately that I wanted to play other instruments, but also, more crucially, I felt the desire to make my own music right from the beginning. Even before I knew what the notation was, I was scribbling, scribbling down note names and making shapes and so on. So that, that instinct was ignited on the first day. Really? Mm. Is it, how, does that, how does that come to you? I'm t I, you know, what is, you know, it, it feels mysterious to me. How can you know at 10? It's something that has to come out, whether you like it or not. Is that yes? Weird? That's that's the way it, it was then, and the way it's been ever since. Uh, I don't know how it happens. It's just one of these mysterious things. Uh, but, but but it's it's when one's own character comes into alignment with with a skill that is absolutely drawing something from you, uh, a necessity yeah. uh, to respond to that, and it's there in all the arts, and I'm sure in many other things, uh, but. Um, uh, that little moment when Miss Grey, she's still alive, gave me my first recorder was the light going on for me that, that has uh, had, had huge implications for what I've done in the decades since. I mean, in some ways, I think you're rather blessed, actually. I mean, because most people, I say most people, a lot of people go through life mm. and they don't quite know, they have a feeling for something, maybe this, uh, mm. to actually know, you know. Yes, although I didn't know what it would mean uh, at that stage and what the implications of a, of yeah. uh, what a life in composing would be, but um, my f my mum was very interested in music and indeed my grandfather that I've mentioned, uh, he, as mm. I say, he, he was a coal miner, but he lived and he lived for music. He loved music. He mm. played a euphonium, as many of these miners did, and all over um, areas like that in the UK. And so when I came along, he was delighted and. Um, uh, and they began talking to me about composers, and I, I found out about 
other, other composers, dead composers, uh, the great composers, because my mum had played piano when she was young and I kept on finding her old piano music, uh, sonatas by Beethoven and little pieces of Chopin and so on. And so there was music in the house. My grandfather started giving me stuff that he had played and, and sang. He um, he'd sang in the local Catholic church choir and so on. So gradually I began to realise there's this, all this music and crucially, I, be, I realised there were still composers alive, mm. uh, and some of them, uh, great composers, just a few hundred miles down the road from where I lived, Benjamin Britten. Uh, yeah, right. And so I get very interested in the idea that it was not necessarily a, only a museum culture, a dead art, as it were, yeah. but you know there were people doing the same things. This was the 1970s. Um, that they were doing 200, 300 years before that, and that was very, very exciting and in, indeed an, an encouragement for me. But you see, you were quite specific about wanting to compose. It wasn't just that you wanted to be a musician. Uh, yes, that's right. There, there, there was a bit of both. I've always enjoyed performing, and, and nowadays when I perform, it's as a conductor. Yeah. But, you know, I played the trumpet and the cornet. My grandfather got me into the local brass band very early on. Uh, that was my training. Oh. Um, did you sort of... You went to music school, did you, after that? I mean, well, I decided to study at university. Um, right. there, are, there are different ways of learning the craft and the skills of composition. Um, in, the, in my day, in the 1970s, because the, the university courses were a little bit more academic and there was a kind of background of historiography and musicology, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to learn about the, the depth uh, of the culture. Uh, um, the, the, the conservatoire route was slightly different, although they've, they've kind of con converged in, in more recent years. But I, I went to Edinburgh University. Mm -hmm. um, my teacher there was Kenneth Layton, who is well known, he's dead now, but he was well known amongst church musicians. And he, he, he was, his music was quite like Benjamin Britten's in some way. And then John Caskin at Durham University later. Yes. I, I remember you know, when I was at school, we were played Britain's Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which is a wonderful, way, uh, accessible way for, for kids to, to uh, get into classical music. Um, one particular area that you have written for, obviously, is, is, is the church and, mm -hmm. and you know, sacred music, mm -hmm. liturgical music. Um, that is something which I would have thought is quite unusual now, is it? Well... You would think that, but um, the thing is, uh, in modernity, in, in modern music, let's talk about the 20th century before the 21st, if you look at who the major figures were and are, many of them were profoundly religious men and women, um, not just spiritual in the vaguest sense, but you know, Stravinsky, for example, was mm -hmm. a believer. Uh, he fell in love with the Latin church when he came to the West, although he was, his orthodoxy was still with him all his, through his life. He, he set the Psalms, of course, he set the Mass, mm -hmm. uh, he, and um, he was as revolutionary in his music making as he was uh, uh, conservative in his theology mm. and uh, that, that's the interesting thing because we, we, ima we imagine modernity in the arts as being part of the retreat from religion and uh, and you can point to some of the other arts perhaps and say that is right but yeah. in music it's more difficult to say that yeah. and it's because I think there's something innate in the nature of music that is profoundly spiritual and many different composers know that uh, they might not go the, the, the orthodox or the um, expected religious route uh, like Stravinsky. Um, others explored the 
ideas and indeed the religions of the Far East. John Cage comes to mind. Uh, but John Cage had studied with Schoenberg. Yeah. Um, and, and Schoenberg is another case in point, who, a, a composer who reconverted to a practicing Judaism after he left Germany in the 1930s. And his music's imbued with that Jewish spirit and culture uh, and heritage. Uh, but he was a mystic. He was fascinated by silence and silence's umbilical relationship with music and how how, how the music begins in, in the silence of our own souls, the silence of our own minds. That's what drew John Cage. And of course, it has, has impacted in so much uh, of the, the modernist search for the sacred. You could even say that the search for the sacred right from Wagner right through to today, John Tavener and Arvo Pert, whose yes. company I was in very recently, um, that, that Search for the Sacred is, is, is a given. It's been part of the mainstream of modern music, modern classical music, and that does not surprise me. And it doesn't therefore feel uh, that what I'm doing is very odd or out of no, the no. But it, 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 this is unique for music would you say? Uh, well it's very hard to detect it in other arts. Except I've had some very interesting discussions with uh, poets for example who can trace the same lineage and search in modern poetry yeah. uh, um, through many uh, great poets um, of our time uh, but it's, it's very acute in music and it's perhaps something to do with the that music is this mysterious thing. It communicates its power, its strength, its meaning in things, in sounds beyond words and beyond images. And that is the mysterious and strange thing about it. What is this thing that's affecting my emotions and yes. depth of soul so much? But it's not necessarily in words and it's not necessarily what I can see. Yeah. Uh, you can't see music. You can't touch music. You can't yeah. taste yeah. it. But it's there as, a, as, a, as a, a reality, but it's a very different kind of reality from the, the thingness of our lives. It's a, it, there's something about transcendence, isn't it? I mean, it, it's transcendent, yeah. I think, music. I yeah. think so. And I've come across many music lovers, and they don't necessarily share my uh, worldview, certainly not my religion, uh, but they, they recognise that transcendent quality, mm -hmm. and they... they in their atheism t sometimes and in their agnosticism will speak about music as a spiritual art form and they obviously mean something by that. Mm. <coughs> you uh, have written quite a lot about your relationship with, if you like, the broader artistic establishment. Uh, mm. it, it, how would you characterise that now? Well, um, <laughs> the first thing to say is that uh, uh, in, in music, I think I've hinted at it already, there is a, a, a profound understanding and knowledge of where music has yeah. come from. Mm -hmm. There's an acknowledgement of the Judeo-Christian roots uh, of that heritage mm -hmm. and, and, and so on, and that, that many of the great composers from the past, right up to now, wrote music for the church, was, were employed by the church. So in music, there is a great open-heartedness, open-mindedness about the spiritual nature of, music, of the art form. Yeah. And outside of that, it can sometimes be different, and, and I think this uh, um, bewilderment that there's people still writing masses and stab at matters in the 21st century is out there. Mm. Uh, mercifully, I don't come ac across it very often, but sometimes I do, and it's usually in, in uh, the, uh, an article in The Guardian or something. Uh, yeah. Sorry to single them out, but you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, but there is a, there is a kind of... Um, uh, 
left-wing secular groupthink uh, about the arts in general um, that might have made it more difficult for me if music hadn't been so powerfully spiritual anyway. Yeah. But also it leads to those assumptions that we started off with, doesn't it? The assumption that somehow you're going to be broadly left politically and all yeah. that. Did that sort of, how did that play when it came to things such as the the, the Scottish vote, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, yes. you you actually were quite clear there, weren't you? You you were on the no side. That's right. Um, I, I decided. I mean, I, I mean this. Uh, on, on one level, it's not that was not or wasn't originally a left-right thing, although no. perhaps perhaps no. it has developed that way because the nationalist movement in Scotland has become very left-wing, and uh, that was one of my. Uh, uh, worries about the nationalist movement generally. It was becoming uh, a, a, a broadly so socialistic experiment and um, but but fueled by an, a profound anglophobia and um, um, that was real inwardness. then, was it, that, that anglophobia? Oh that yes, very much so. And they, they'll argue that it wasn't, but, but it was. And uh, th there was a, a narrowing down of options and a, a nastiness emerged through it. In retrospect, I wonder whether it was a, a good thing to come out and, and say what I thought, but I did. Um, I wrote about it. I, I said that uh, for various reasons, not just cultural reasons, but for economic reasons as well and political reasons, social reasons, uh, Scotland cutting itself off from the bigger Anglophile, Anglophone world would, would have been a disaster. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote that and immediately attracted um, opprobrium, especially from the arts. There's this weird organisation uh, called Artists for an Independent Scotland and you, you were expected to sign up for that. And they were all very shouty and, and young, uh, a lot of them, and um, um, I think they put a lot of people off independence mm -hmm. actually because of their uh, quasi-hooliganism and the way that they responded in debate. Uh, and you see that emerging in so many other debates today. So when I saw this other uh, referendum coming down the tracks a few <laughs> years later, I decided I'm not going to be doing that again. <laughs> um, and and yeah. uh, I've decided to stay out of that out uh, of it, yeah. because, as we have seen, it's become very, very toxic. It's, it's uh, dividing families. It's ending friendships, um, just as the Scottish independence thing um, did. And uh, th that's a great shame, and uh, it's made me reflect a lot on um, wh wh what an artist can do in the world of politics. And I see a lot of my, my colleagues entering into various debates, but causing uh, division uh, in mm. so doing, and I'm not going to do that anymore. There's something about the healing power of music that can make us come together, and I, I will always remember that. Uh, um, hopefully in the years to come when we put this, these divisions and toxicities behind us. Mm. Uh, on that you know, point, uh, it struck me, for example, this year at the proms, uh, the last night of the proms. Um, suddenly this thing that had been you know, quite a fun thing had seemed to have become a forum. I don't know what, did you see it? Did you? Uh, I didn't this year, but I, I've, been, I've seen it coming over the last few years, yes. Yes, it's sort of like it was a mixture, an awful lot of uh, EU flags. And it was something which was, um, you know, for many people a bit jokey, for many people quite sincere. Mm -hmm. 
um, but it's become this kind of, uh, you know, this sort of battleground in an odd way. Yeah, it's a great shame because I, uh, I mean, I used to hate the last night of the proms for left-wing reasons. Right. Um, and then I came to love it because it was a bit of a laugh. It was like letting our hair down and having yeah. a laugh at ourselves yeah. and nothing was very serious and everything was ironic and the waving of flags and the singing of these uh, wonderfully comic and silly songs. But I would hate to see that disappear and it mm -hmm. become, a, as you say, a battleground, another another forum for the divisions in our society. Mm. Uh, you, you said that you have become less certain as you've got older. Um, obviously you're talking about politics, but generally, I mean, you know, do you, do you, do you feel, does that make you feel, as it were, better? I mean, do you, do you feel more, do you feel more open? Is that, is that, that's really what I'm asking. Uh, in some senses, I do feel more relaxed. More relaxed. Uh, because I feel that I can, I, I'm happy in the company of many different kinds of people. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have form, formed friendships with people who I, I would not have uh, encountered many years ago from the likes of Roger Scruton, for example, who yeah. I admire greatly and I cite his writings on Wagner and aesthetics and beauty a lot. Mm got a story about, about that citation that I'll come back to in a minute. And then the, the likes of George Weigel, who, who uh, was John Paul II's biographer and very much on the sort of uh, Republican side in American politics until recently perhaps. And uh, to engage in uh, friendly conversation with him uh, has been a, a real learning process mm. for me. I found out a lot about American politics. And then some like Alexander Stoddart, uh, the, the great sculptor up in Scotland, uh, very yeah. much uh, associated with uh, uh, social conservatism perhaps. Um, and I've enjoyed their company a lot. But I don't think I would ever want to lose the friendships I've made with genuinely left-wing people um, that, that are as open as I am to dialogue now. Yeah. Whether you whether it's more difficult to find that openness on the left is, is, a, is a, a matter of debate. But as I say, I remember quoting uh, Roger Scruton in a in a. It wasn't just a pre-concert talk. It was an on an on-stage talk uh, in the. Uh, at the South Bank Centre a few, day, few, few years ago. And then there was a review in The Guardian, of course, where else, uh, which, which mentioned me quoting Scruton as perilous. Really? You know, I, perilous I quote, for who? Well, exactly. Who did he mean? Yeah. Perilous for the people who are hearing these uh, <coughs> dreadful opinions? Or was it perilous for me? Yes. Uh, was this a threat? Yeah. Uh, was this uh, a... a, a, a a sign <laughs> yes. uh, that I had stepped out of the fold. Yeah. Uh, that's the feeling I got, and uh, that that was another danger moment. I realised mm, this this is this is going to get more and more difficult yeah. for m yeah. many of us uh, uh, in the years ahead. And I think that is that, that has been proved to be the case. You have said, I think, uh, James, that because your Catholicism is central to your life, um, that, that tends to put you immediately, as it were, against the grain of opinion. Is that, would you say that's right? Yes, and there's been a long history of that, of course, in this country. Yeah. Uh, to be Catholic uh, was to be against the grain. Against the grain. Uh, to be Catholic it was to be um, treacherous uh, yeah, yeah. In, in our deep, deep, deep history. And uh, perhaps there's a little bit of, of, of that today. I still get a lot of reaction uh, from the left again, it has to be said, which automatically sees all Catholics as um, 
conservative, socially conservative on right. a whole range of things and they assume um, a whole range of phobias that you, you suffer from and attack you for it without a word being spoken and it's, I think it is my Catholicism uh, that, that puts me in that kind of firing range. Can I ask you, I mean this is a, a question probably you'll ask quite a lot. Uh, I remember at school uh, with my recorder uh, we had an orchestra and we were taken to the festival hall to see things. Uh, is it more of an uphill task now with our educational system now to get younger people interested in classical music than maybe it was when we were young? We were roughly the same age. Yes, yes I think that is probably the case and it's because music is not seen as one of the basics. And perhaps there is blame on right and left on, on this, that uh, music is being edged out of the curriculum. And um, uh, th th that's, it's causing a real uh, uh, disastrous uh, disintegration um, um, in state schools especially. Yeah. It's getting to the stage that o the only pe people that are being uh, in a position to learn music and to make encounters with classical music and indeed a whole range of very very different kind of musics are, are kids that have been to private schools yes. and uh, yes. that's a, uh, a great slight on our um, meritocracy yes. uh, if, if that continues and so yes that there are danger signs uh, the, uh, the numbers that are wanting to take music at school at A-level standard and so on are dropping uh, precipitously in Scotland as well as in England and it, uh, I think a, a degree of some kind of musical or cultural activism is, is required from us that are involved in that and I know that the likes of Simon Rattle and many others have uh, given voice to these anxieties. You see I remember you know again growing up there would be programs on what we had three channels or whatever there would be programs about music or for young people you know this is what's sort of gone from our culture in some yeah, ways now hasn't it right. this kind of what you might call is a casual coverage of these things you you're not going to just sort of like happen upon them so easily are you no decisions have been made uh, that that the, the the high arts, the classical arts, are, are not to be on the, the the main channels anymore. So they're hived off into little ghettos yes. uh, where you can go if you want. But you're right that those chance encounters, you know, a, a child turning on the television and seeing Verdi's Macbeth, which happened to me when I was, I mean, by that stage I was very involved in music, but I'd never come across a Verdi opera. Yeah. I just happened to see it on the television one day, yes, exactly. and I was just blown away by it. And yeah. there may have been others, maybe not many like that, but, but it did happen, and it can still happen. I mean, even, even the proms are beginning to disappear from BBC One. Uh, when my Confession of Visible Gaudi was shown on the television 30 years ago, of course it was broadcast on Radio 3, yeah. BBC Radio 3, but it was on prime time, uh, or uh, evening BBC One Scotland or something. And uh, so lots of people could, could uh, come across it by accident. And in fact, the next day after uh, it, was, uh, it was shown on the television, I went to a Celtic Aberdeen game at, Partick, uh, at Parkhead, and at, uh, at half-time I was tapped on the shoulder by a, another fan who asked, was, was that your premiere that was on the television last night? Yeah. And at that point I realised, yes, something has changed for me if that's yes, happening yes. Uh, when I go to the football, but, you know, here are um, uh, fellow working class men, mainly, um, 
who are watching the proms last night and hearing a brand new piece of classical music. It, it's a pity that this is happening because um, it seems to me that classical British classical music is actually pretty healthy at the moment in terms of people such as yourself, composers. Is, is, would you say that? I, I certainly feel that. Um, uh, we're in an odd position here in the UK in that uh, we've not gone down the um, top-down cultural route that the mm. Germans and the French do. You know, they impose high culture and modernist culture from the top. Mm. Uh, but we haven't gone the populist route uh, that happens in America. We're in a strange position, probably mid-Atlantic, looking both ways. Mm. But it does mean that there's a, there's the, 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 the approach to modern music in in this country is less doctrinaire than it was in than it is in Germany and France, yeah. and, uh, and and different in its own ways from what happens in America. But it's a good place to be because the, there's no there's no school of, of British music has emerged. Um, uh, uh, there are very different kinds of British composers. Yes. I love them all. Uh, yeah. I mean, I conduct the music of Thomas Addis yes. or. Um, uh, Mark Antony Turnage, George Benjamin, and they're very, very different composers from me. Um, but I have a very, I've always had a non-doctrinaire attitude to the various stylistic shifts and changes mm. in modern music, and that's a very British thing, yeah. just to be celebrated. You were, um, I, I think, quite clear, weren't you, about wanting to compose for the concert hall? Isn't that right? You didn't go down the other routes or maybe film or anything like this? Or no, I, I, th that moment has gone for me. I, I think you need a particular kind of mindset and you need to be young uh, to be to go into film. I, I, a lot of my colleagues did it and they're, they're doing very well. A lot of them make a lot of money out of it, uh, good on them. But I don't think I've got the mindset for it, no. mainly because you've got to... Uh, give over control to someone else yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't really been in that position, I w wouldn't want to be in that position, I, I want uh, um, authority over what I do. <laughs> oh, quite. Um, James, it, it, it's right that your premiere of the, the Fifth Symphony I mentioned, mm -hmm. that is now, that's going to be uh, you're going to be conducting yourself in London, are you? Or it's not me that's conducting. Uh, I wrote this piece, the Fifth Symphony, for the Sixteen, yeah. which is conducted by Harry Christophers, uh, right. one of the best choirs in the world. It's actually for two choirs. It's for his Sixteen, which is a chamber choir, and then Genesis Sixteen, which is the uh, the larger chorus that has come out of his training academy for the Sixteen. So Harry Christophers will conduct it right. with those two choirs and the Britain Symphonia. Uh, at, at the Barbican on the, Barbican. the evening, yeah, uh, on the evening of the fourteenth of October, right. it's uh, it's got a subtitle. It's called Le Grand Inconnu, right. uh, the Great Unknown. That means something quite different, I think, in, in Britain. But it's it's something that points to and is inspired by and and um, uh, reflects on the mystery of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Great Unknown, Le Grand Inconnu, and it, it allows me to really experiment with sounds and ideas and um, words uh, and phrases from Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Even I even have the choir breathing in and out at the beginning just to, because uh, the word ruach uh, is associated with the Holy Spirit and it's about the breath. And there are some wonderful musical images uh, associated with, the, with the, the, the physical attributes of the Holy Spirit. There is breath and wind, yeah. spiritus, 
Uh, there is um, water, of course, living water, Mayim Chaim in Hebrew, and there is fire, uh, of the fire of Pentecost, uh, Inye, Velinye. You've actually talked in the past about the importance of silence, I think, yeah. and this, I think you called it an assault on the interior life, actually, yeah. by... by by noise. By noise, absolutely, <laughs> and, we, and we musicians participate in that, collude with it sometimes too, I'm afraid. Uh, but it's, it's a place I go to, and I know that many composers go, it's, a, it's like a... It's, it, it's the breeding ground of music. Uh, I think, no matter whether you're in the countryside where I am now, or, or in a, a big noisy city like this, composers have to carve out that space where they can go uh, and be silent mm. and engage with the silence of the thoughts because it's in that silence that the music begins. There's an umbilical link between uh, silence and music that all composers know and, and recognise. Uh, it's, it's something we need mm. uh, to make the music, to make the noise that we do. Well, look, thank you very, very much, James, for, for speaking to me today. You're very um, I would say, actually, you know, uh, one of the great things about YouTube. And, and, and you know the YouTube world of YouTube is that an awful lot of your music is actually on it mm. uh, performances of it and um, really if people want if they don't already know your music and they want to they they should actually look that up it's quite sublime um, thank you very very much indeed James um, yes do look up on YouTube some of the performances of Sir James Macmillan's music um, we'll look forward to seeing you next time Thank you very much indeed, thank you.